Melissa Tate is a Christian conservative author, activist, and political commentator. She's also the author of the book, Choice Privilege, What's Race Got to Do With It? Melissa, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining me on the show. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I want to get into your, exactly what came about for your book and you writing it in a little bit. But first, I want to try to play the other side on you and say what ex and ask you what exactly are some of the issues that you have with critical race theory? Well, uh, basically, uh, critical race theory um, is a is a Marxist ideology, really at, at its core. Like if you really just want to go down to its core, you know, it's a Marxist ideology that is designed to racially divide and conquer a nation for Marxism. Yeah, so uh, so it's something that I've actually seen play out in my own country, and I and I write a lot about that in my book. But also, uh, you know, just even not even looking at the bigger picture, you know, what is it doing to children? What is it doing to white children? What is it doing to black children? So it has an, a psychological effect that is, ha is having on children and on people and on society. So it's something that I don't think is good on a societal level. And on the bigger picture side, I feel it, it is dangerous because it's Marxism. Now. It's come to a lot of people's attention and there's, of course, people or parents gathering together and trying to put a stop to it in their school districts and to their school boards. So now that that's been brought to light, a lot of the counter argument to that are people just saying this is just a way to teach children about racial injustices and the law, about past history that people have faced in the United States. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that if parents were to just sit and read more about what their children are being taught, that they'd be more against it, or would they be understanding of what, you know, people might argue that they're trying to teach? No, I don't think they would be understanding because the way it's being reported in media is very different from how it's actually playing out in real life. And I'll give you an example of that lady named Gabby. I, I forget what her last name is, but she's actually one of the first women to sue a school for teaching that type of ideology because the way it manifested in her son's life. So she's actually a, a biracial woman. So she's black. And her son, uh, I guess he looks white. And because he looks white, he was asked by the school to write a paper stating his white dominance. And mm -hmm. he refused to do that. And rightfully so, because you shouldn't be forced to do something like that. And because he did that, he was met with, um, you know, pushback, he, uh, I think he actually got punished for it by the school for not writing a paper about his white dominance. So you see how this is playing out. And this is, uh, so the mother was horrified and she's actually suing the school for this reason. So you see what it does. It like targets children and, and puts them in a position where they're supposed to, you know, internalize their, their race and, and feel guilty about it if they're white. If they're black, they're being told that you're oppressed and you, you can't amount to anything. So to me, this is something that is very dangerous to children and it shouldn't be taught in schools at all. Now in grade school and high school, you're sort of expecting the children to just, you know, take in what they're told, they're, they're uh, quizzed or tested on it and you move on from there. But in college and university, you're supposed to have more of a critical uh, thought basis to what you're being taught. You're supposed to question it and, and maybe come up with some ideas to go against it. But why is it, do you think that so many young people, college, university age, are willing to jump on board with this, especially people who are, who are living in areas where they maybe feel like they have some sort of privilege and they've been told that 
other people who don't look like them would not have the same privilege as they do? Well, because the universities no longer teach people how to critically think or challenge any ideas, they're just basically given what they're supposed to think. And really, they're being told what to think. And these children, you know, particularly from the white privileged areas, they're being told to feel guilty about, you know, who they are, about being white and to feel sorry for all these black people because they're oppressed and so forth. And that's what they start to internalize. But really what it is, it's it's it, it, uh, critical race theory. It claims to state that they are trying to teach history, but really they don't really teach the true history. It's a very revisionist history if you really study the type of history they're, they're uh, teaching out there because it is a history that only focuses on the bad things that happened to Black people, but it also erases all the achievement that Black people and all the accomplishments Black people have made in this country and all the contributions they've made to this nation. So it's a very one-sided type of way of looking at it. And if children in universities are just presented with one set of facts or one set of, uh, one, uh, one uh, if they're presented just with one type of history and not any other types of information, then they're just gonna form their opinions on, on what they're given. And there's a lot of stuff that is omitted out of it. And I'll give you an example. You know, uh, if you study Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington was a great African-American man who built a great black university. And actually the, um, the, the president of Harvard came to the Tuskegee Institute, which was his university, the black university, and stated that the Booker T. Washington's university was creating more millionaires than Harvard, Princeton, and Yale combined. You know, and that's something that's not taught in critical race theory type history. So, and this is at a time when white supremacy actually existed. So during a time right after slavery, when white supremacy actually existed and, and there were barriers for black people, black people were achieving great things and building great societies and doing great things. And all that stuff is erased from this revisionist 1619 project type history that doesn't focus on any of the achievements that African-Americans made in spite of the racism and oppression that was happening at that time. So if that was happening in 1905, if a black man created a university that was creating millionaires, um, that more millionaires than Harvard, Princeton, and Yale combined, so you're telling me that black people can't succeed today in 2021? But that's what they're being told. And it's a message that is demoralizing to black children because they don't ever get to see any of that history of these great achievements that African-Americans made. And they just believe that they're oppressed and that becomes a mentality, that becomes a way of thinking for them and a belief system that actually starts to manifest the poverty and oppression that we see today. Now you mentioned about sort of a revisionist history and, and focusing on the negative stuff. I was having a conversation with somebody recently and we were, we were actually in the grocery store and we're looking at Uncle Ben's rice and we're like, this is gonna be targeted by cancel culture. Little did we know we were looking at an old box of Uncle Ben's and it has already, they've already taken him off of the box. They've taken Aunt Jemima off. And, and there's actual history behind people like Aunt Jemima, which is overwhelmingly positive. Now, I, my, my point is I wanna ask, who actually is affected by this? If, if we take, start taking black figures for better or for worse, the same thing with monuments and statues. If we start taking figures down, 
do you see this as an actual positive for anybody? Do you walk through a grocery store or anybody you know walk through a grocery store and say, thank God Uncle Ben or Aunt Jemima are no longer on these products? Does this make a difference to anyone other than, you know, maybe a thousand people on Twitter who had a problem with it? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't, it, it, no, critical race theory and all this stuff is, doesn't benefit anybody except the far left elites. That's all who benefits out of it because it really, if you think about what they're doing, how does it even benefit the average black person? If you see what's happening in the black communities right now, the biggest issue is the fact that black children are graduating not knowing how to read or do math. So they're being set up for failure. And that is something that we should be talking about and focusing on. Instead, we're tearing down statues and taking Uncle Ben off the box of rice, all these symbolic things that have mm -hmm. nothing to do with actual practical things that can actually help black children get out of the cycle of poverty and off the prison school to prison pipeline. So you see with the left, everything is all about symbology. It's never about anything practical that is actually gonna change anything in the black community because they don't want anything to change in the black community because the way the left succeeds is to, is, is to perpetually have an underclass of voters that are poor and disgruntled and never achieve anything so that they can continue to perpetuate the narrative of oppression in the hopes that this, oppression, this oppressed class will then help them overthrow the system that they're trying to overthrow, which would be the American system in this case. I think you're completely right. And I want to show the woman uh, who claims to have coined the term critical race theory. She is, you know, Joy Reid on MSNBC. Um, I hate how much I mention her, but she's got these, she gets these people to come on and they're basically saying that everybody's got it all wrong. They're misrepresenting critical race theory. So I want to play that clip. I'm not sure if you've seen it and then we'll get your comments on yes, it. Yes, I Yeah. Theory well, Marxism. Look, you know what? Here's, here's the thing, Joy. Um, critical race theory is not so much a thing. It's a way of looking at a thing. It's a way of looking at race. It's a way of looking at why after so many decades, centuries, actually, since the emancipation, we have patterns of inequality that are enduring. They are stubborn. And the point of critical race theory originally was to think and talk about how law contributed to the subordinate status of African-Americans, of indigenous people, and of an entire uh, group of people who were, were coming to our shores. Now, it seems to me like they don't ever, and if you, and anyone can go and watch the full clip there, I think it's a seven minute interview. They don't ever talk about what's actually being taught or what's actually in the papers that were written about critical race theory. It's like if I were to describe prison in the best way possible, I'd say it's a rehabilitation center where you know people go and they can learn about themselves, they can spend a lot of alone time and think about what's going on in their lives and they may come out and be a better person. Where in the reality is you might ha you're gonna have to join a gang and you're gonna get stabbed or something like that. They don't wanna actually talk about what's really in it. And on top of that, they don't seem to see Marxism as a bad thing. Now, maybe I'm just reaching there because it should be assumed that Joy Reid or MSNBC, it's obvious that they don't see it as something that's bad, but they're, they're kind of positioning it as separate. The same thing with uh, intersectionality. Now, mm -hmm. now, I think that's what's exactly what's going on in the media like we talked about earlier. Do you think the goal should be to completely stop teaching things like critical race theory altogether? Or do you think there's a different viewpoint that can be taught to try to get the points that this is supposed to be uh, to, to get the, those points across. 
Well, first, I'd like to in, uh, address that video that you just played, and it just shows you how the left is deflecting from this issue because they don't want to face the truth because they know that the way this ideology is manifesting is repulsive to people no matter <laughs> what political side they're on. So they want to keep people bogged down on these academic definitions of what mm -hmm. critical race theory is and not talk about the, how it's practically playing out in people's lives. So I see what you're saying. And then your second question, uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat what was that second thing you asked me? Yeah, I'm just wondering if you think we should eliminate that sort of thing completely or if there's a different angle maybe people can go at to try to teach like a racial history or teach about inequality. Do you think that needs to be taught at all or should that more of be a parental upbringing thing? Well, here's the thing. Um, I think, you know, obviously it needs to, it, it shouldn't be in, in K through 12. It really shouldn't be there. But when you always attack something, because really us as conservatives, it seems like we're always on defense. So we're always, uh, you know, attacking what the left is doing. So we have to have an alternative. So um, I know that, um, what, uh, I forget what her name is. Um, Dr. Carol Swain actually has a an alternative to critical race theory trainings, you know, like the diversity trainings they have in the corporations, right? You've seen those. So um, she has an alternative that she offers to people. So you always want to offer an alternative. So when somebody gives you a glass of dirty water, but there's nothing else to drink, people are just going to keep drinking this dirty water. So you have to come up with a clean glass of water so that people have an alternative. So I believe in creating an alternative. So I would come up with maybe something like unity race theory that kind of encompasses all the history. You know, the fact that black people were succeeding in this country, the fact that a lot of white people, you know, died and lost their lives to stop and end racism and slavery and all these things because they never want to talk about that. They never want to talk about the fact that, you know, some of the Africans were sold by other Africans to come over here. So this is not a, you know, they also don't talk about the fact that slavery was just the norm in society. And it was actually Western civilization based on Christian Judeo principles that actually ended slavery. So all that is still part of history. So I think if us as conservatives come up with an, an alternative, um, you know, his, oh, or an alternative to critical race theory that shows the entire picture of what was happening during this time and explains it, then people have an alternative to, to turn to. And they can say, okay, well, at our school, we're not going to teach critical race theory. We're going to teach unity race theory, and we're going to talk about all the history and not just a selective history that's creating a narrative. So that's kind of the way I look at it. I think another I think problem that arises from that is if you start going into the history of, you know, civil rights and ending slavery in the United States, it sort of goes against what the Democrat Party claims to have been about and always been about throughout all of time. Whereas you have a president, Joe Biden, who was friends with Dixiecrats, for example, who were the party of slavery. So it's, I, I think some of the tiptoeing politically around that goes into pretending, and, and you talk to people today, they have no idea that Republicans were against slavery uh, when it existed. So I think the t political tiptoeing around that comes from not wanting to actually reveal what is actually the reverse history uh, that some people are taught. But, you know, maybe that's a conversation for another time. I wanted to talk about also your book called Choice Privilege 
and ask you what goes into writing a book like that? Like what inspired you to talk about this idea of privilege? Well, actually, um, it, it was actually inspired with the events that was taking place in 2020. So, um, you know, we had the George Floyd uh, tragedy that happened, and we all know how the left seized on that as an opportunity to smear the country as an entirely racist and evil nation. And I reject that premise because I am actually an immigrant from Zimbabwe. I came to the United States at the age of 19. I left everything and everybody I knew to come to this country with nothing but $300 in my pocket and a suitcase full of clothes. And by the time I was 27 years old, I had a business that was doing seven figures in revenue. I was living the American dream. I'm married. I have three children. So this country has really been good to me. So when I start to hear this narrative that America is oppressive to minorities, I know that to be a false narrative. And when this George Floyd tragedy happened and the, um, you know, the way the left really seized on that to create a narrative, I felt like that was a turning point in America in that this narrative that I used to hear on far left Twitter and far left academia that America is systemically racist and evil started to become mainstream. I started to see it with friends, family members, and even my own pastor who was now posting, you know, Black Lives Matter decals all over the church windows and talking about his white privilege and apologizing. Oh for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was mortified. I was really mortified. And that's, that's what really just was like the tipping point. Cause I realized that, you know, because as somebody who follows politics very closely, I know that the premises that black lives matter, you know, uh, put out there, the fact that they say that black people are literally being hunted down like deer season by policemen and being shot. And then the statistics and the data don't even support their claims. I know this. I know that uh, Black Lives Matter is a self-proclaimed Marxist organization. I know that they're anti-family. They're very much anti-Christian values. So to see my pastor actually just, you know, not knowing all these things and just, you know, going with the flow, it just, it just really grieved my spirit. And um, in my frustration, um, the Lord spoke to me and said, write a book about it. And I was like, okay, I will. So um, I wrote the book and it's called Choice Privilege. And basically uh, it's a play on the words white privilege. And I cross out where it says white and I put in choice because in America, it's not, <clears throat> it's not the color of your skin that determines your destiny and the quality of your life. It's actually the choices that you make. That has been my experience. And that has been what my mother has taught me. And I think that is an empowering message that it is the choices that you make because it gives you power to change your situation. But if you're telling black children or minority children that you know, you're know you doomed to fail just because of the color of your skin, something that you can't change, you can change your action, you can change your choices and change your destiny. But if you're not being given that message that you have the power to change your life and change your destiny for the better because of the choices you make, but that you're doomed to fail because of the color of your skin, that is a message that is very defeating. It is demoralizing. And it is something that, you know, everybody should reject, no matter what color you are. Don't you think it's really weird? I mean, 20 years ago, I mean, I grew up on the very things that you're talking about. Uh, you can do anything you want, regardless of your race. Um, the goal of society is for everyone to be equal. And, and we have laws that reflect that. It, it's weird to me that now a person saying the things 
like you're saying, and that a lot of people are starting to say now, this is sort of supposed to be a counterculture. This is against the grain. And in many places, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say that. Have you noticed how weird of a world we live in, in this sense where it's like, it's we're, very... we're, we're edgy now to say that everyone should be equal? <laughs> yes. Well, it's equal opportunity and not equal outcomes, For but sure. now we're, you know, moving into the space that unless we have equal outcomes, then, you know, America's a horrible place. And obviously, there's no way of ever getting um, equal outcomes. It's an unattainable goal. But you see that with the left. Everything they propose is something that is unattainable. Like they say, we're going to eradicate, we have to eradicate racism. How are you going to eradicate racism? <laughs> How are you going to regulate the way people feel? You know, so they always have this unattainable thing that they put out there as a goal, knowing that it's unattainable and that if you don't attain it, then you're never, you know, the, then the country is just a horrible yeah. place. But really what's happening, um, you know, what we're seeing, like you're talking about, is that this has taken the left a um, hundred years. You know, it's been a slow march through the institutions. They've basically infiltrated every sphere of influence from media to education, to entertainment, to business, to everything. And they did it while we... Christians and conservatives just basically, you know, didn't do anything about it. And now we're finally waking up in a world where if you say there's two genders, you're the crazy one. <laughs> so uh, it's really because we haven't really, um, you know, pushed back on the left's, you know, slow infiltration into every sphere of society. But I feel like it's not too late. And I feel like people are finally waking up now. We're kind of waking up in the in the last innings, but we can still, <laughs> we can still win if everybody gets involved and gets engaged. And that's, that's kind of been my message. Like we need to just get off the sidelines and realize that we are in big trouble in this country. If we let the Marxists take over and coming from a country that, it, that fell to Marxism used critical race theory as, you know, as a means to achieve that goal. I understand what we're up against. I understand what the result is going to be if these people win and it is ugly. And that's why I have felt really compelled to write this book and warn people that this is not a game. This is not something we should take lightly that everybody needs to get involved and start speaking up, standing up, going to school boards, you know, even pulling your kids out of public schools. You know, that's something I really talk about, but we really have to become uh, awakened, engaged, and radical. Now, I hear people like Candace Owens and uh, Amala Ekpanobi from PragerU, they talk about these assumptions that people have about their beliefs just because they're black. Now, is this something that you've experienced personally, and do you feel compelled to sort of tell them about Zimbabwe? Um, well, I mean, most people, I mean, obviously you see that most people well, the way I see it is most African-Americans really are conservative in their values. Mm -hmm. You know, they believe the same things we kind of believe, just the average person. But it's, all, it's that vocal minority that is on Twitter, that is in media, that is in academia, that are the loudest. And so it seems like they're the ones who, you know, represent what, you know, the average Black person feels. And the only, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of black people, even though they are conservatives, they've always felt like, you know, voting Democrat is just the way they're supposed to do it. And they don't even think twice about it. It's just second nature. 
So I think really it's about educating the African-American community that, you know, you're really voting against your own interests. And this is something that President Trump started, you know, in 2016. He, he really was somebody on the right who really, um, you know, opened up this new type of re outreach to the Black community that was meaningful in a way that kind of was able to bring a lot of Black voters into the Republican Party, or at least to the conservative side, to awaken to the fact that the Democrat Party doesn't represent the Black community at all. In fact, the Democrat Party has been a destructive force to the Black community. Yeah, I, I struggle with naming a political party that's been worse for Black people <laughs> in the Western world than the Democrats. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I can back that up if I need to. I also saw a video from Pittsburgh, their lieutenant governor, almost said lieutenant, because that's what we say in Canada, um, saying that he's saying that voter fraud isn't an issue. It's just all voter IDs, all about su suppression. They're talking about the Texas Democrats who all left and went to Washington. That's a big deal for some reason that they all went to vote on this thing. But they're all saying, especially out of Texas, since it's such a battleground state with so much um, illegal immigration coming in. And obviously a lot of these people are voting and, and that's a huge battleground topic for them. So I want to show you this clip from that's a local news station, I think in Pittsburgh, where this guy's saying that it's not an issue at all. Can we play that, Justin? Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman says that voter fraud is, quote, a fiction. He talked this morning to the Texas House Democrats who fled to D.C. to stop an election bill in their state. Fetterman has spoken out in the past about voting rights and Pennsylvania's 2020 election. And today he called universal voter ID insidious and unnecessary. Universal ID and some of these other measures are a solution for a non-existent problem of voter ID, excuse me, of voter fraud. And it's simply voter suppression because they don't want people voting that they believe aren't going to ultimately elect them. Back in the fall, Fetterman got into it online with the Republican Lieutenant Governor of Texas over accusations of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Now we got LeBron James, we got Major League Baseball, all these people, it seems like Democrats are always against voter ID. They basically say it's too hard to vote. And I think I'd be a little bit more sympathetic to this guy if he was saying, of course there's voter fraud, but it's not so much of a big deal that we need to change our laws. He's saying that it's not an issue at all, which I complete, I can't get on board with that. How do you feel about this idea that asking people for ID is, is completely just voter suppression? It is absolutely insulting in my opinion, you know, cause uh, basically what they're saying is black people are too dumb to have an ID. That's what they're saying. And it just goes back to, you know, the bigotry of low expectation that the Democrat party has always had. They've always used black people as their human shield to pass whatever laws they want to pass because of poor black people. So we're going to have to help them, you know, cause they're, they're like, they're like crippled children that we have to, you know, help. And it's absolutely ridic ridiculous. I come from a country where, you know, people use, they, they, they vote with their ID and most of these people live on a dollar a day. You know, and if they can get an ID, then African-Americans can get an ID as well. So it's absolutely ridiculous. We know that the reason why they don't want ID is so that they, they can cheat. You know, that's that's just basically what it is. So it, it, 
does it bother you when when that's like let, let's say a white person says that and, and they think they're coming to your defense when they say you know i mean joe biden says uh older black and mexican people can't use the internet to register uh to get a vaccine so there is a bigotry below expectations but does this bother the regular person do you think to be told this is it demoralizing how does it make somebody feel when they say the you're you're basically helpless you can't get an idea even though you probably already have one well for me personally it's very patronizing it's very patronizing and and it's something that you know the the white liberal establishment has has really you know i feel like they have like this white savior white superiority complex where they feel like their life is just to you know be captain with a cape to save every black person out there and that's the lower level people but we know that on the higher level uh, on the higher level these people are not out there to help black people they're out there to use black people as pawns as a means to the, their uh, agenda and really that's what it's all about you're going to you're going to cause a lot of people's heads to explode <laughs> if you keep talking like that i wanted to get your opinions on and this is because nobody in Canada ever talks about this. There's churches in Canada that are constantly being set on fire, vandalized. It's not being covered here by the mainstream media. The prime minister has said, I think, two sentences about it. And it seems that Americans care more about this stuff. And you're a, a vocal Christian personality, so I wanted to bring this up with you. We have a little montage, Justin, from our website that I wanted to show. Um, let's, let's go ahead and play that, and I want to see how you feel about that. In less than one month, close to 50 churches have been burnt or vandalized in Canada. And it looks like they're not about to stop. But all of a sudden, Canada looks a lot like the Soviet Union. Seem like we're exaggerating a little bit? Well, they're burning Catholic and Anglican churches in recent days. Leftist groups are. But Canada's leaders aren't condemning the burning of churches. No, they're endorsing the burning of churches. Oh, look at that new one. Somebody's putting that water out. The tower is on fire now. Maybe the people who do this should know that we 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 are with them before too. So you would think that this happened over the course of a year, but it's actually been like a month. Um, first of all, had you heard about this before uh, we played this for you? Yes, I did see that, and I, I hadn't actually. I mean. I feel bad that I haven't really focused on this issue, but this is such a horrible, horrible thing that is happening. I mean, I don't know what is going on in Canada, but Canada is just, it's like there's this antichrist spirit that has arisen up over there. And it seems like people, they don't really fight back against this agenda. I, I don't understand, but maybe you can tell me a little bit about, you know, the way Canadians feel about this, but this is absolutely horrifying that this is happening, but it just goes to show that really what's happening, in my opinion, all of it is an attack on Christianity and attack on the people of God. This is what I've seen, because you see even like with the with the COVID situation, you see that a lot of the things they target is things that have to do with church and so forth. But you can see how, you know, things like strip clubs and bottle stores and, you know, mega corporations can be open, but churches have to be shut down and you have, um, pastors being arrested. You have churches being burnt down. I actually met with one of the pastors, um, the pastor that got arrested 
and when I was in Tampa, Florida, and he was telling me all the stuff that he has had to endure. But he said that in spite of all of that, he's actually seeing revival in his church. So that really gave me hope. But just to see how, you know, um, a society that was founded on Judeo-Christian values, I mean, the West, the West, Western civilization is built on Christianity. But you see that there is an agenda by the left to strip Western civilization of its Christian roots, because really that is the foundation of what everything that we stand for as a civilization comes from. That's where our laws come from. That's where our morality comes from. That's where everything um, that we believe in as a society, whether you're a Christian or not, comes from those Judeo-Christian values of loving your neighbor, um, being kind to one another, not stealing from one another, thou shall not kill, and all these things, because these were things that really weren't part of society before Western civilization. You know, a, a lot of people lived in societies where they were tearing things down and, um, you know, there was no freedom and there was no, uh, you know, good relations between people and so forth. So it's really sad to see how they are really attacking. There's a, there's a deliberate attack on Christianity that is taking place in West, in the West, all over the, all over the West. Well, what's... What sort of sparked this whole thing was they found a mass uh, burial site that was unmarked. Uh, by most accounts, even the people there, it was just an unmarked, you know, a grave site. But the, the sort of the TV and news, mainstream news narrative here was that this was from the, uh, the Catholic uh, schools that brought in all the indigenous, the native children, and tried to convert them into Catholicism. Of course, they weren't, they weren't treated well 70 years ago. Uh, I would be surprised if anyone had a good time at a Catholic school in like the 50s, <laughs> frankly, yeah. um, the way the nuns acted. But that's sort of, it was sort of sparked by saying that this was just like, you know, a mass gravesite where they buried these children in secret. Turned out it was more so like unmarked graves. And of course, graves should be respected and, and not desecrated. But it sort of turned into this movement now where I would, it, it appears to be a far left groups going across the country and and setting a blaze or vandalizing. A few people have videotaped themselves doing it. There's people who've been caught on uh, security cameras. And it doesn't appear to be what some people thought of maybe natives doing it, because some of these are actually on Indian reserves, the churches, and they're still being served as uh, churches for the communities there. So it, it would be very confusing if people were burning down essentially their own church and dam damaging their own reserve and their own properties as a way, you know, to get back at, uh, you know, a, a sect of churches that may have been from another province. As you can see, they're all across the country. They're in different places. So that's sort of where the uh, the story comes from. And you'd have to wonder if the, the people in power, the federal government at least, which is very liberal, uh, maybe less liberal or more liberal than the Democrats, I would argue, Oh, wow. or, but um, they probably don't completely care about protecting uh, religious rights because, you know, there's a loss of religion and a loss of faith completely in that section of politics. But that's basically where it comes from. And, and if you want to look into more of that, we have the website there. Um, Definitely more into that. No, I see. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the left that are, you know, tearing and burning things down. Because if you study history, that's what the Marxists do. You know, they're just going to be tearing down churches, tearing down st statues, burning stuff down. 
and so forth. So I, I am not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the left and not who the media says is doing it. So yeah, I don't think Biden even would be as silent on this as Trudeau is because of how much Christianity there is in uh, the United States. Uh, obviously, Trump wouldn't be silent on this at all. There would probably be something put in place. But speaking of Trump, do you think that I was talking to a YouTuber yesterday. Do you think that uh, that Trump is going to run again for 2024? What do you think the possibility is of that? Well, I think he is going to run. I think the only reason why he hasn't come out and said it is because of the um, is because of the uh, the election commission. I think they have rules about that, but he's made enough of hints for me to believe that he is running. I'm just assuming that he is running. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. He seems to be already campaigning. <laughs> so I don't doubt that he's running at all. Who do you think he chooses as a vice president this time around? You know, I don't know. I would say he should pick Ron DeSantis, but I, I want Ron DeSantis to stay in Florida because we need Florida to remain free. So um, he would be a great pick for, for VP, but I'm not sure who I'm not sure who he would pick, but Ron DeSantis. I think you also have Kanye. No, I'm just kidding. So what's Kanye's party? The birthday party, I believe, is Kanye oh, West's party. Kanye has kind of gone sideways, so who knows about him? <laughs> I don't. I haven't heard from him. The last thing I heard from him is he's got the girl who's kicked out of the Olympics on his uh on his team there for oh, for really? Adidas. Yeah, the girl who was banned for smoking weed from the Olympics is uh, oh. doing an ad campaign with Kanye and Adidas. So that's an interesting play there. Were you disappointed with anything uh, with President Trump and how his term ended? Do you think there's anything he could have done better? A lot of people are mad at him uh, after the fact, of course, about how he pushed vaccines, about how he gave people false hope that he didn't actually lose and that he wasn't actually going to be taken out of office. Is there anything that you can look back and say that you hope he does better if he were to win again? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people were disappointed with a lot of things. Uh, I certainly don't agree with his push for the vaccine. Um, but the way I look at it, I, you know, going back to what I was saying, you know, it's taken 100 years for America to get to where it's at today. So to, to put the blame on President Trump that he didn't do enough in the four years that he had to do, you know, with, with unrelenting attacks on him and his family, I think it's unfair to put that on him because this is something that has taken a hundred years. And the reason why it's happened this way is because Christians and conservatives did nothing for the last hundred years. You know, it's been, it's been apathy. Nobody's been doing anything. And then Trump comes in, you know, with boldness and stands up to a lot of this stuff and does the best that he could in the four years that he had. And everybody all of a sudden expects that he should have done more in the four years uh, you know, more to dismantle all of this, you know, this is something that may take decades to dismantle, because this is something that, you know, this is a plan that has been in motion by the left for the last hundred years. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So I think we need to have grace for him. Um, I think we need to appreciate all the stuff that he was able to accomplish, because he did do a lot, despite having unrelenting attacks against him. So I just try to keep a positive view of President Trump and just, um, you know, just be grateful for the little that he was, you know, I, I don't think it's a little, but, you know, for the stuff that he was able to achieve. And if anything, one of his greatest accomplishments was waking people up, you know, <laughs> just having him as president, you know, has um, caused 
the left to basically take their mask off because their power before this was the fact that they were able to do this in a stealth way, in a way that was very undetectable. But in their desperation to get rid of Trump, you know, they took away the mask, they threw it off. And now we know the media is completely fake. You know, everybody can see it now because they were forced to be openly biased and, um, you know, downright <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, fraudulent in our faces. So, you know, so that that's a good thing that has happened because it has caused people to see really what we're up against. Because the first step to fighting something is knowing what you're up against. And we never would have known all these things unless President Trump was in there to shake things up and uh, actually reveal what was, you know, simmering at the bottom, you know, all the evil that that we're facing right now. Yeah, I think it's definitely true about the border, about gun issues, about abortion, even about voting uh, and the veracity of, of the, the voting system in the United States. I want to thank you for coming on, Melissa. I had a great time talking with you. Anything else you want to say before we let you go? Well, I just wanted to say that I'm actually um, going to be starting a new show uh, called Reality Check. And uh, really what I'm going to be trying to focus on is not only educating people, but motivating people to become activated. Because I feel like, you know, we're talking a lot about the issues and the problems, but there aren't too many uh, people who are talking about the solutions and how people can get motivated and activated in their own communities on a local level and their school boards and all these things. So I'm going to be starting that show and it's, uh, it's called Reality Check. And if you're interested in in um, hearing when it's going to start, you can just text the word reality to 53445. Thanks a lot, Melissa. The book is Choice Privilege. You can find it on Amazon or or on her website. Of course, follow her on Twitter. Half a million people on there. No joke at all. Thanks a lot, Melissa. Have a great day, okay? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.